This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi. Hello. This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. And we are on our second part of the Black History Month theme, whatever you call it. I struggle with that. I'm like, is it a theme? Is it a series? It's a concept. It is a concept, and we have two parts. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it becomes a series at that point. And I guess there's a theme in there somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, this is that. And it is Trapper's turn to introduce us to someone who is black and has some pretty great achievements. Yes, and I've done a little bit of a departure from what we're used to. Mm-hmm. The person that I've chosen is not is an author. Uh-huh. He's not prolific. He okay. only has like he only has one work. And he to did his he credit. write anything fictional or he wrote an autobiography. Okay. But it had a very heavy impact. Okay. So it's an important work. Yes. And it's one that we don't discuss like at all mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah, I'd never heard of him. So I I chose him because of that. And I think if we're using black history as a theme, I wanted to choose somebody who was black, who wasn't an American. Mm-hmm. And who had a really heavy impact on history. And you said just a second ago We've only done American authors. We have. Which is, I was like, oh, that was a complete mistake, but <laughs> let's, let's try and branch <laughs> out a little bit. Unconscious era. Yeah, so this is a great time to, you know, be like, okay. And we were talking about the term African American earlier mm-hmm. and how people in America seem confused about what you call black people right. elsewhere without being offensive. Um, and you were telling me how in your. Which class was it? I, well, in grad school, I had the benefit of studying under a very a brilliant woman. Mm, I want to meet her. And she was, I hate the word fearless, but that's kind of what she was. Mm-hmm. She was not, she was never inhibited based off of a discussion topic. She mm. never was like nervous or had any reservations. And we talked a lot about race. And yeah. she wanted frank topics. Yeah. So <clears throat> one thing she taught me is that African-American is a political term. Yes. And it's an important term mm-hmm. because it gives identity to people who who don't have the benefit of saying, I am a Nigerian-American. They can't trace their lineage right. you, because they don't, of slavery. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it gives them an identity. Yes. And I believe it was coined in the 80s by Jesse Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so it's, while I can say I am an Anglo-American and mm-hmm. so-and-so can say they're an Italian-American, you are an African-American. Yes. So it's a political term, and it's only applicable to people who aren't able to trace their heritage to a specific region in Africa. So I was telling you earlier, if someone immigrates to the United States, Mm -hmm. and they are, say, from Kenya, they're a Kenyan-American. They're not an African-American, as we call it. And um, the reason we got into that topic is I heard somebody call Naomi Campbell an Mm -hmm. African-American, and she's... An Anglo-African woman. Yeah. Meaning she's British. Wow. <laughs> so I think as Americans, we get especially... Maybe, I don't even think it's just white Americans. I think as Americans, we get flighty easily uh-huh. when it comes to talking about race and any yeah. capacity. And we want to be PC, most mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. I think that's admirable. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. in so doing, we slip up. Because being PC means being inclusive exactly. and conscious of that. Right. You know? So, you know... Do, do you want to say, I guess what I'm trying to say is the word black, I don't think is an evil term. No, not. I'm a proud black woman. Right. And that is, that's what it is. Yeah. And you also happen to be African-American. Yes. 
Um, the person I've chosen is not African American. Yeah. He would have been considered an Anglo Nigerian. Okay, in the so let's age. let me let you actually introduce him and then get into the history. Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm just gonna just start asking questions. And we're gonna get into a discussion about his name mm-hmm. maybe after we've done some of the history. Yeah, so let's get into that. I chose Olauda Equiano as my author, and he was born in roughly 1745. We don't know the exact day, month, or year he was born, Uh because he was born in Africa, and they did not, at this time, observe the Gregorian calendar, so the year 1745 meant nothing to them. I wonder if they... Had their own calendar. Oh, I'm know? sure they, yeah. yeah I'm sh- some I, way of tracking Right. Mm-hmm. I, had no, I didn't do much research on it, but I'm sure they had their own concept of mm-hmm. marking time. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was born the youngest son of a village leader, and his family was part of the Igbo people, and they lived in what is modern-day Nigeria. So we do know he was West African. He was expected to follow in his father's footsteps and become a chief, hmm. but he never got the chance. There was a lot of anxiety in West Africa during the time in which he lived about being abducted uh-huh. and sold into slavery. And unfortunately, when he was roughly 11 years old, he and his sister um, were home alone and were abducted by two men. Uh-huh. They were transported away from their home village and ultimately separated. And about six months after being abducted, Equiano was brought to the coast. And from there, he saw white men for the first time, and he was handed over to slave traders. Of course, the experience of being transported from Africa to the New World was extraordinarily traumatizing for mm-hmm. Equiano. He was a little boy. Yeah. I mean, it was How a traumatizing... He was 11. Okay. I mean, that was a traumatizing experience for adults. Yeah. Along a child. And the Middle Passage was very difficult for him to process both physically and emotionally. Of course, the Middle Passage mm-hmm. was... The expanse of Atlantic that went between West Africa and uh, the Caribbean. Yeah. So he was transported to Barbados, and most of the other enslaved Africans on the ship were promptly sold there in Barbados. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one bought Equiano. Hmm. Um, and so less than two weeks after his arrival in the Caribbean, he was shipped to the English colony of Virginia. There, he was purchased and put to work collecting stones and weeding flower beds. Um, He was little, so he wasn't skilled, so they had him mostly doing yard work. Mm -hmm. He eventually fell into the hands of Michael Henry Pascal, who was a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. Pascal bought Equiano for 40 pounds, and he named him Gustavus Vasa, which to me sounds Dutch. I don't know why the Englishman named him that. See, I thought it was Spanish, but you know more about those things than me. (laughs) Um, Pascal took Equiano with him on his various sea voyages, and Equiano arrived in England for the first time when he was 12 years old. And... He remained with Pascal for seven years, and during that time, he actually became self-educated. He learned to read and write. He was able to delve into Western culture and history. So ultimately, he was able to function within English society as an educated individual. So did Pascal see him as a slave or as a... He was a slave. Okay. so He he was self-educated. But he had to work... Or exactly. For Pascal. That's exactly right. He wasn't like an adoptive son or anything like that. Unfortunately. And in fact, in 1763, Pascal sold Equiano to a Captain James Dornan. Mm -hmm. And he was then taken to Montserrat, which is is presently still an English um, territory. Thank you for telling me that. (laughs) And when he got to Montserrat, the island's leading merchant, Robert King, purchased him. Oh, jeez. Three years later, in 1766... Equiano bought his freedom for 40 pounds, which is what he was originally purchased for, 
and he subsequently found work in trade in the West Indies before returning to London. He was an avid seaman, and he joined a 1773 expedition to try and discover the Northwest Passage, which is a make-believe route through the Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not make-believe, but like it, nobody's ever been able to do it. Make-believe, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I get people throughout history have wanted to figure out a way to get from Europe to Asia yeah. without having to go around Argentina. Yeah. So they, you know, and of course the mission failed. Equiano was nearly re-enslaved in 1775 mm. while he was helping set up a new plantation colony on the coast of Central America. But he managed to escape in a canoe. Oh, gosh. And by the skin of his teeth. Imagine that fear just your whole life. Oh, my goodness. Tremendous. I mean, he was moving around, and he was in the Caribbean. He was in Central America, and he was working for these British merchants. Yeah. He was a black person. He was free, but they could have easily... I mean, someone takes your free papers and rips them up. That's You're a right. slave again, you know? That's exactly right. So, he moved back to England, ultimately, which was a safe place for him to be. Yeah. Um, and he became an active abolitionist. He lectured against the cruelty of the British slave trade, and he worked to resettle free slaves. Mm. Okay, so he was very active in that. He formed the Sons of Africa. I'm not sure what year he formed that group, but that was a group that campaigned for abolition through public speaking, letter writing, and lobbying parliament. So it was a political group. And in 1788, he led a delegation to the House of Commons in support of William Dolben's bill to improve conditions on slave ships. And that bill limited the number of enslaved Africans that a ship could carry. That's incredible that you're working to end slavery, but at the the same time, you're like, I'll take any inch, any improvement. Doing the best I can. Yeah, let's just make that number smaller. Right. And in 1789, he wrote his widely read autobiography entitled The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Ulauda Equiano or Gustavus Vasa, the African. Mm -hmm. And instead of putting his name as the author, he put written by himself. And the book became a bestseller, and it was responsible for a literary boon for the abolitionist movement in Britain. Oh, okay. So it became, in a way, in a positive way, like propaganda for the abolitionist movement. He married Susanna Cullen of Ely in 1792 in Cambridgeshire. And she was a white woman, and they were only married for four years. She died in 1796 at the age of 34. Their short marriage produced two daughters, Anna Maria Vasa, born in 1793, and Joanna Vasa, born in 1795. Equiano died on March 31st, 1797, aged roughly 52, and his older daughter died that same year. Wow. Does it say how he died at all? It doesn't. It, I'm not sure why he died. I mean, he was 52. He was living in an age where I think the average life yeah, expectancy was pretty slim. Young, but like for his daughter to die the same year, I wonder. And if she was, was like... very. And she was only four years old when she died. Oh my gosh. But his other daughter, Joanna Vasa, inherited her father's estate, uh-huh. and she married Reverend Henry Brumley in 1821. He was a white man. Yes, he was also white, and they lived in Essex and in London, but they never had any children. These interracial relationships at this time... Fascinating, aren't they? Are fascinating that yes. they were able to just live mm-hmm. together as husband and wife. I know. Without, I don't know if, what kind of rhetoric swirled around that. Yeah, or what they faced. Right. But there aren't any descendants of Equiano because his, his daughter died of uterine disease. In March of 1857, she was 61. 
Wow. And they kind of conjectured that maybe she had uterine fibroids, so she was never able to have children. Yeah. So there isn't anybody walking around in Britain today who can claim him as their ancestor. Yeah, but you know what's interesting? I, we talked about this a little bit earlier, how he doesn't really have any descendants. But I'm like, Britain descendants. That's exactly he spent right. a lot of time traveling the world. That's exactly right. He was a sailor, for goodness sake. Yeah, there's probably descendants in Central That's America. exactly right. <laughs> but there's nobody who we would say would be a legitimate descendant yeah, of his. Yeah, that's true. So he died um, seventeen ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, Great Britain abolished the slave trade in the British colonies, but slavery did not end in the British colonies until eighteen thirty three. Wow! Four years shy of Queen Victoria's reign, so it extended a long, a long time. And when I was doing research, when Parliament abolished the slave trade, mm-hmm. people thought that would eradicate slavery mm-hmm. pretty quick. Yeah, and it didn't. It continued. They had to finally pass another bill in 1833 saying, okay, people can no longer be enslaved in a British territory. (laughs) That's like when slavery uh, was abolished in America, it took years for some slaves to be freed. That's exactly right. And, you know, um, I don't, I I didn't check the date, but I believe the international slave trade ended in the 1830s, 1835 or something, when Spain and Portugal and the United States said, we're not going to bring anybody else from Africa legally. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, slavery didn't end in Brazil until 1898. That was the last country in the Western Hemisphere. I didn't realize. Or 1892, something like that. It was yeah. almost the 20th century. Wow. And um, it's interesting that we're having a discussion about slavery because I read an article that said they think they found the Clotilda off the coast of Mobile. And the Clotilda is famous because it was the last ship ever to bring Africans against their will to North America. Really? Mm-hmm. And it, they found it was burned out. They thought it didn't exist. Wait, it, it was, was burned out Meaning it was. Oh, wow. It was, they, it brought people to Alabama. Yeah. And once they were unloaded, uh-huh. the men took the boat into, out into the Gulf, uh-huh. lit it on fire, so there'd be no evidence. So, um, it's, this is a timely topic because bits of history are flooding to the top. Yeah. Um, it's crazy that it was awareness. just discovered. Just discovered. They didn't think it existed or they thought maybe it had been lost. Yeah. But they, they believe it's that's what it is that they mm. found. So anyway, um, he worked hard and his efforts really, I think, bore fruit in the long term. Yeah. Even though in his lifetime he didn't get to see slavery abolished in Britain, he, he saw a swell of support based off of his experience. Um, and there's a lot to be said about his small victories that I'm sure he had many of. You know, just trying to reduce the number of slaves brought over. Helping resettle people who were enslaved. Exactly, yeah. Helping them find work free. and places because to Because he had that experience. Mm-hmm. He had been a slave and he was free. And that is an adjustment. You know, he <laughs> went from being... It, it's it's really remarkable because he, he went from being a slave. Mm-hmm. When he purchased his freedom, he became a British subject. And as such, he was afforded equal rights. Uh-huh. It wasn't like in the United States. I mean, it was different, at least in theory, mm-hmm. from the United States, where a free person of color didn't have civil rights. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't pretend like they had civil rights. Yeah. In Britain, at least in theory, once you were a subject of the crown, you were afforded yeah. equal rights. And he got to move around a lot, and he, he married a white woman. Yeah. I'm not sure the criticism around that. Had a, had a child. Had two children. Yeah, yeah, and one of which not only grew into womanhood, but married. A white man. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but because he only, really, the thing that he produced is this autobiography. I chose uh-huh. an excerpt from it that I want to read, and it has to do with him on 
the ship coming to uh, the Caribbean. And I, I love that you chose this reading because we don't have much information mm-hmm. from someone's own personal point of view. Right. I've never heard a story from a, you know in a first person perspective of this. It's it's incredible because he was 11 years old when he was taken from Africa mm-hmm. and he managed to master the English language not just verbally but also being and able to read and write yeah. so this is a kind of a rare um, yeah. a rare documentation exactly oh I'm excited to hear that yeah okay alright let's hear it The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olauda Equiano or Gustavus Vasa the African written by himself I now wished for the last friend, death, to relieve me. But soon, to my grief, two of the white men offered me eatables, and on my refusing to eat, one of them held me fast by the hands and laid me across, I think, the windlass, and tied my feet, while the other flogged me severely. I had never experienced anything of this kind before, and although not being used to the water, I naturally feared that element the first time I saw it. Yet nevertheless, could I have got over the nettings, I would have jumped over the side, but I could not. And besides, the crew used to watch us very closely, who were not chained down to the decks, lest we should leap into the water. And I have seen some of these poor African prisoners most severely cut for attempting to do so, and hourly whipped for not eating. This indeed was often the case with myself. And a little time after, amongst the poor chained men, I found some of my own nation, which in a small degree gave ease to my mind. I inquired of these what was to be done with us. They gave me to understand we were to be carried to these white people's country to work for them. I then was a little revived and thought if it were if it were no worse than working, my situation was not so desperate. But still I feared I should be put to death. The white people looked and acted, as I thought, in so savage a manner, for I had never seen among any people such instances of brutal cruelty. And this not only shewn towards us blacks, but also to some of the whites themselves. One white man in particular I saw, when we were permitted to be on deck, flogged so unmercifully with a large rope near the foremast that he died in consequence of it, and they tossed him over the side as they would have done a brute. This made me fear these people the more, and I expected nothing less than to be treated in the same manner. I could not help expressing my fears and apprehensions to some of my countrymen, I asked them if these people had no country, but lived in this hollow place, the ship. They told me they did not, but came from a distant one. Then, said I, how comes it in all our country we have never heard of them? They told me because they live so very far off. I then asked, where were their women? Had they any like themselves? I was told they had. And why, said I, do we not see them? They answered, because they were left behind. That was powerful, just as I expected it to be. That was really, really, really incredible. But there, oh, I don't even know where to start. Like I, I've been waiting, I've been waiting, as I've been preparing for this, mm-hmm. to see how you react, to hear what you have to say. You and I, I don't know that we've ever had a really deep conversation about slavery. Well, that's not dinner party talk, so... No, it's not. But also, like, we've had a lot of real conversations. We've had instances where, you know, we're like, we don't agree on this. Or, like, mm-hmm. but not, like, terribly. We're right. generally on the same page. Not that slavery would be a topic that we That's not a on. controversial issue. So maybe that's why we've just been like, 
Slavery is terrible? Okay. It still affects blacks in America today? Okay. okay. You know, it's just like, <laughs> There's what no deep debate. conversation do we have to have about that? <laughs> right. Uh, but it, we're on a podcast today, so here we go. Let's go. Um, Let me hear your thoughts. The first thing I want to point out, though, is his writing style. Mm-hmm. What year is this? 1789, it was published. 1789. And I, I am confident when I say that. Usually when I'm reading stuff from 1780-whatever... I can't. I can barely follow. I'm just like, yes, I'm understanding what they're trying to convey, but this language is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This language is not complicated. It's very easy to understand. It conveys everything it needs to convey. And me sitting here in 2018, I don't feel lost. I know exactly what's going on. So that's the first thing. I don't have any any other comments on the way he uses, uh, like, his tone or anything. Like This is... He, I wouldn't call him a creative writer in terms of like he wasn't a fiction, no. like a novelist. He was somebody who wrote a memoir. Yeah, and this is his life. And I want to say the significance of it being authored by himself. Mm-hmm. Not by Olauda Equiano, not by Gustavus Vasa. He wanted people to know, I didn't sit down and tell my story mm-hmm. and a white man didn't write it for me. Yeah. I have transcribed this from my memory. Yeah, exactly. It was important. And so the fact that the writing style, I think still for a modern person, it's a very formal way of writing, mm-hmm. but in no way overly complex. Yeah. And maybe that's what he intended. That's right. He was like, I need to express this. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a tone here. It's, it's very, I, you can see that he was scarred at this age. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess we should get into the actual content because that's what disturbed me a lot. I I kept thinking the whole time that these people were treated like animals. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to eat, so I'm going to beat you. Mm-hmm. And you think of a person being fed as this, I mean, especially being from New Orleans, I'm like, eating is this glorious occasion. Right. It should be celebrated each time. And seeing food be just like perverted into this terrible thing like eat food so someone can use you later you know it's it completely just breaks down the the most simple pleasure that i have in life you said perverted right is that the word yeah perverted it's totally perverted the 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 simplest pleasure that i have in life which is eating food i really like food so you know it's it's there's small details like that in every ounce of this and this is his introduction into slavery it's like this is immediately not that any part of slavery would be a joyous thing yeah or even just like easy Mm -hmm. but this is just like you're a loving year old boy we're forcing you into this position and welcome it's only gonna get worse he has such keen observational skills the way he observes the way the whites interact with one another not just with Mm, the other enslaved africans and um if you read this I think is chapter um, four of his book, chapter three or four. I have to look back, but it's at the beginning of the book. And if you read the whole, um, the moment from which he is abducted to the time he reaches Barbados, he's very shrewd. He talks about the way the the men's face, the, the slave traders' faces look, mm-hmm. the way their brows are furrowed. He's absorbing all of this, mm-hmm. and it's all based out of fear. Mm-hmm. It's not curiosity so much as anxiety. That he's and you envision this like young black boy standing before like they they're being described almost as monsters like Mm -hmm. they they have these stern faces and they have bloody whips Mm -hmm. in their hands and he saw a man be killed Uh and they're even mean to each other so where is there an ounce of goodness in these people like he's painting that picture he's like i cannot find anything 
even good, they're not even nice to each other. And, you know, he's talking about monsters. To him, they're unisex. Mm. Where are there women? Yeah. Why are there no women here? Yeah, it's like, um, oh, maybe white white people are only men. Exactly. He's never seen them before. And yeah. they say, well, they, they women have been left behind. But mm-hmm. they surely exist. And I, I ended there. It was, that was like mid-paragraph. Because oh, really? to me, that was a very powerful way to end the reading. Yeah, and I remember... They've been left behind. The first thing that I said was like, oh, there's something about the patriarchy mm-hmm. in here. And I like never actually addressed yeah. that, that statement. And I still need to think about it, I think. His experience is is probably unique for the time in which he lived. And I think had he been purchased in Barbados mm-hmm. when they arrived there, maybe there wouldn't be a narrative. Luck played a heavy hand in each step, each terrible step that led him ultimately to be in a position to write this narrative. I mean, to be black and educated mm-hmm. at this time is <laughs> nearly unheard of. Oh, it's You know, wild. like how he, you said he was self-taught. Mm-hmm. But he somehow found access to books. Somebody had to sit down and say, this is what, you know, I mean. Yeah, how to read. Right. And um, I didn't talk about this much, but when he purchased his freedom, Mm -hmm. and he worked briefly in the Caribbean in in trade, he moved to London. He he had to get a job as a servant there initially Mm -hmm. before heading back out to sea. Uh And so um, he led such a professional gamut, too. Uh I feel like he did everything. Yeah. And he he didn't die exorbitantly wealthy. I think his... His daughter, when she inherited his estate, I believe what I read is the modern equivalent of what she inherited was like 90,000 pounds. I mean, to be have an estate... At all. As a black man, it's <laughs> just incredible. But, the fact, but he did earn. Yeah. Um, he did have some savings. But back to the topic of... To the passage yes. that we were reading. You said it. A lot of what we know about the Middle Passage and what we know about the slave trade, we do know some from people who shared their stories but this is really heavily in depth yeah they're written everything that i've learned about it was a was abstract it was like and this is what happened on these ships right it was they were overcrowded mm-hmm. um many of them sank and everyone died mm-hmm. everyone was chained up very closely there was no hope for survival right. there's a beautiful monument have you seen it the one that's underwater i don't know exactly where it is but there are these beautiful statues of black people just underwater at the bottom of the ocean floor. I know that. Yeah, and I I need to find more about it. I'll put it in the show notes if I remember. But, you know, we know what happened, but I've never heard first-person perspective. That's so valuable for his voice to be heard in this way. And reading it, reading if you read the whole of his his narrative, one of the things, I kept thinking back to the movie Amistad, and that's a really powerful visual image of what happened to enslaved Africans. Uh Uh-huh. And so I kept thinking about that, and that that's really difficult to watch. And then going back to the fact that he was a prepubescent child mm-hmm. experiencing And Okay, I, this might not be related, but I have two questions, mm-hmm. and you don't have to give me an answer. I just wanted to pose them. Yeah. Why didn't he go back to West Africa? And why, and I guess how was he comfortable to marry a white woman? Just, I mean, he was 11 when he wrote this. Well, in his, you know, he was 11 at the age that he's writing about. Yeah. And he describes this experience with people who he kind of viewed in a way as monsters. So I just want to know what happened in those years where he's just like, I'm going to move to England and I'm going to marry a white woman. I would have a lot of resent, I think. And resistance to, I I don't want to say buying into 
Right. This culture, but I would. I mean, I guess you're better poised to fight against it if you're inside of it. But I, I don't know if I would be able to. And like you said, I think once he established his freedom, mm-hmm. he probably saw a platform through which to make certain mm-hmm. no other people fell into the condition in which he found himself. Exactly. And you said that he kind of developed this appreciation. I don't. I don't think I. The word appreciation is kind of weird. For the, the British system with free men and everything. Right. But he he realized that that's the way they, things were. Mm-hmm. And in order to not play the game, but, you know, infiltrate the system, I guess it would be better to be in England. Yeah. But, I mean, marrying a white woman is a different thing. And that, I don't know, okay, that's a little more interesting. Because, again, as with all things we do on this podcast, we're coming from a place of pure conjecture. And there's a lot of speculation here as well. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a person in the seventeen late 1700s. <laughs> we can't talk with him. <laughs> we're like, ah, oh, his motivations were A, B, and C. Here we go. I mean, he's right. a black man in England. I, I don't know if there were that many black women there. This woman could have been a fierce abolitionist as well, and he respected her. I don't, I don't know. It's just things, questions that came into my mind when... And hearing I'm, his history. What I'm thinking is, uh, from my perspective, there's probably an enormous amount of cachet that comes with being married to a white woman. It'd be like in the modern age, uh, this is a terrible equivalent. Oh, uh, is, is it like a food equivalent? It's not. I wish <laughs> I could make it into one. <laughs> I wish you would. <laughs> okay, so I was going to use cars, but I'm thinking, you know, even if you don't like the taste of caviar, it's a terribly expensive thing. See, I think it doesn't <laughs> oh work. My God. Do you know what I'm saying? And to be able to eat caviar is is not so that's a terrible analogy, and maybe you should cut it out. But I love it. But what I'm thinking is, even though he was 11 when he was sold into slavery, brought to the New World, and he probably had, I mean, he had obviously had vivid memories of the world in which he was born and mm-hmm. raised. He was inundated with British images of and ideas of respectability. And eventually he was gone from home more time than he was at home. Right. And that does right. something to a person. It changes exactly right. their, their world view. He yes. was everywhere. He, Central America and beyond. Right. It's a long way from home, especially back, especially back then. Right. So, you know, and, and I mean, we can assume that maybe he loved this woman since they got married too. <laughs> okay, if you that's want to assume cr- that he loved her. That's not something we've talked about. And <laughs> perhaps terrible. she loved him too. That's yeah. why they got married. They've had two children. Right. Yeah. So um, there are lots of reasons why. Yeah. And, and I don't want to speculate on his marriage I know. Much, but I mean, it's a They question. were only married for four years anyway. Yeah, I mean, but she died. So that's... Right. And I don't know really very much at all about... How his marriage was received, what how people her thought family about reacted. It. I mean, look at Angelina Well Grimke's parents, <clears throat> who just like the the mother could not handle the pressure of being married to a black man, right? And that was in the early earlyish nineteen hundreds. And we have to bear in mind, uh, although America, the concept of American morality and the social scheme in America, both today and in you know seventeen ninety seven. Um, are based on Britain mm-hmm. and British ideals. Even when he was marrying his British wife in the 1700s, Britain itself was a different world than America. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is, I don't know how Brit- Britons in Great Britain mm-hmm. viewed race, because you've got to bear in mind, the people in Britain were not exposed directly to slavery. Many of them accumulated wealth as a result of slavery. Mm-hmm. 
but there weren't slaves working in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not injected in their culture as much I as don't it think. is here. Right. So um, I don't know. Maybe people thought. Maybe people thought this is an exotic, like just a human being. Maybe it's just. Maybe they thought he's just a man who happens to be black. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for but based off of the social norms of the time, I have to assume that her family didn't object. I can't imagine her maintaining any respectability without have and getting married without their her parents' yeah, consent. True. Yeah, this was a period in time in which you could be ostracized for any little thing, exactly, especially as a woman. Yeah. So um, I can assume that her family were like. In my mind, it makes more sense that. All of her family was dead. Maybe it was. She got married. Hey, and look, she was 30 years old. She was a, a legitimate spinster at this point. Oh, okay. That changes things a little bit. So I don't know if they, if her family were alive and thought, honey, he wants to marry you. He has 90,000 pounds. Go ahead. Yeah. Or, or if, no. You said the equivalent of $90,000 Equivalent of 90,000 pounds. Yeah, it I don't was know. like 2,000 pounds. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Whatever. But they probably thought, oh, right. You know? Yeah. Uh, or maybe they didn't. But mm. for but whatever um, the case, they did get married, and it wasn't like they hid in a cottage somewhere in the... I mean, he was around, active, and oh, he had yes. her with him. Yeah. And they paraded their children around, too. Mixed-race babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you do a little research on Joanna Vasa, who's the one who grew up into adulthood, she was mostly perceived as white. Really? Mm-hmm. She... It, it was... She, people wouldn't weren't thinking when they saw her, like, oh, she's obviously a... And a woman who is not British. Um, you, you know, that <laughs> blows my mind. And I think that's a Southern thing. Because I could oh, look at someone who is like one fourth, one sixteenth of black and be like, you oh, got honey. a little black in you. But Same here. Back then, I think that if you don't look African, then they're going to call you white. So. And this is, again, Britain, not in America. Yeah. It's funny you say that because when I was in grad school in Michigan, <laughs> we used to have talks about... Being able to spot somebody uh-huh. as a person of color. It's like, oh, they're and They were oblivious. Really? Oh my gosh. So we had this one author we discussed, and the teacher put a picture up on the side. I said, oh my God, is he Creole? She said, nobody's actually black. And they were all like, what? Oh my God. I didn't know. <laughs> and you were just like, like, that's a Creole person. Oh, I know, he's Creole. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, but I think that is a Southern thing. Yeah. Because um, we're so in tune. We are. Or attuned to race. 100%. Yeah. And the nuances that come with that. Mm hmm. So, Equiano was a champion of the abolitionist movement in Britain. He was highly, he wasn't somebody who got his freedom and thought, ah, great, now I can purchase my own plantation or, you know, Mm -hmm. captain one of these ships. He was somebody who made a conscious effort. So, he he didn't buy into the system, you know? No, he did not. He was kind of poised to it. I think if he bought into anything, Mm -hmm. it was the ideal Mm-hmm. That British, the, the British concept of freedom, and if anything, he's like, I believe in this, and it's not being practiced, mm-hmm. and we've got to do something about it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, he was participating in the economic system of the time. He did go to Central America to help set up a plantation colony. That being said, in the research I did, in so doing, he was making the best of a bad situation, meaning he saw it as an opportunity to come in and uh-huh. it, kind of like with the, the ship bill yeah. to say these people are enslaved and they're about to be sent to Central America. Uh-huh. I'm going to go and see that this, their situation is as fine as I can make it. Um, that must be so hard oh, though sure. to reconcile that in your mind to be like 
I just want to burn this ship down uh-huh. and leave when maybe those people would have to walk wherever they're going. Right. Yeah, I, well, if they're over water, you can't walk. But, you know, like, I don't know if I would be able to make those decisions to, to convince myself that I was helping when you're kind of helping both sides. This is a tough thing to say, but it's something I've always been trained to do mm-hmm. academically, mm-hmm. to approach all things from a, from a place of historic historical relativity meaning it's easy for you and me to sit here in 2018 Mm -hmm. and say if we were in that position would we probably just blow our brains out versus going and having to like set up a plantation yeah whereas if we were people who only knew 1787 and this was the best we could do we'd be glad to do it because i mean it's so easy these days to get overwhelmed and be like oh see like the political climate right now and be like what can i do what can i do what do i want to go down in history as doing Mm -hmm. and just observe what i have done and be like wow you know someone Mm -hmm. in 300 years is going to be like well i would have done this (laughs) and be like okay buddy would you have so i i understand but there must have been a lot of i want to read the rest of his autobiography oh, because well I'm like I want to know if he deals with like feelings of guilt being a free man and I mean that might have motivated him to be an active mm-hmm. abolitionist yeah and so I chose him because he was not an American author he was not an African American but he's a very important part of black history Absolutely. because he I believe played a integral and necessary important role mm-hmm. in abolition in Great Britain yeah. And as a result of abolition in Great Britain, slavery ended in North America. And what I mean is, you know, there's all this talk about during the Civil War, England was compelled to get involved in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And the South was the most sympathetic side to the British because of economic reasons. Right. But uh-huh. they never got involved because of the issue of slavery. Wow. If Britain was a slaveholding power and they had involved themselves in the American oh, Civil gosh. War... So in, in a, it's all like the butter, like touching a butterfly yeah. and then, or like, did you ever, <laughs> it's the butterfly effect. You need to finish the butterfly thought. It's the butterfly thought. I don't know where it's like, going. If you touch a butterfly today <laughs> and some of the scales on its wings fall on the ground and affect a blade of grass in a million years, then like. An oak tree will sprout. It's, it's something like that. Like the littlest thing has a ripple effect, even yeah. though it seems totally not connected. So um, I think that he played an important role. Oh, definitely. But yeah, like we were talking about with Jesse Redmond Fawcett, she was trying to write things that were accessible to everyone. Exactly. To convey something that everyone could connect to and that white people could especially read and understand the black experience. And for him to sit down and write this autobiography about the horrors he's faced as an abolitionist, a lot of white people were able to read at this time. And they're able to, to, I don't want to say experience, but you know, relive in a very subdued Mm -hmm. way the horrors that he faced and the horrors that were still out there. Because this is the time before any like electronics or like Mm -hmm. reporting on this stuff. It's like, look, live your comfortable life in England while crazy stuff happens in North America and we profit from it, you know? This is waking up white people be like, That's right. This happened? Oh my gosh, I'm going to go to that abolitionist meeting right now. That's right. And that is powerful. I want to, you know, in talking about historical context, we have to bear in mind when we read beautiful important powerful works like the ones written by Jane Austen the people she's writing about their wealth and their lifestyle 
is fueled and funded mm -hmm. by slavery thousands of miles away from Pemberley. I'm so glad you okay? talked about that, yes. And so mm -hmm. he is addressing people who, because think about it, is slavery an issue in Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice no, or it's Emma? Not, it's not mentioned. It's not mentioned. But where does this money, 10000 a year, Mr. Darcy, where yeah. does it come from? That's right. And was Austin herself cognizant of the fact that that wealth was coming from the West Indies? Honestly, she may not have given it a single thought in her entire life. Yeah. But the bottom line is, Equiano Vasa, we never have talked about his name. Mm -hmm. um, he did go by Gustavus Vasa. Yeah. Um, but he was addressing the literate, middle class, upper class. Mm -hmm. People who had some sort of sway. And so you're right. He was humanizing the condition of enslaved peoples in British colonies in much the same way that the likes of Frederick Douglass did prior to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. He was a man who was enslaved, came up north, became literate, and wrote about what it was like to be a slave. I'm a human. I can write. That's you right. can write. You could have been in this position. That's right. Think about it now, and, actually. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's these are important conversations to have. So, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe publishes Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm -hmm. Cabin. It has a heavy impact on North people in the North's idea of slavery. Yes. But it's totally based on fiction. She never visited the South. Mm -hmm. Take something like Frederick Douglass. Yeah. That's an authentic first-person narrative mm -hmm. about real conditions. Yeah. Had a bigger impact. I mean, both were impactful and, and important leading up to the Civil War. But it makes a difference. Absolutely. So if Jane Austen is sitting in, in her Parsons cottage, uh -huh. pinning a story about this tragic figure yeah. who happens to be black and working his way to freedom to try and compel people to endorse abolition, it's not going to have the same effect as this man who's like... No, it's fiction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, this is this is a true story. It is. And we didn't talk much about his name. It's The title of his autobiography includes both his names. He lived as Gustavus Vasa. He gave his daughters the name Vasa. Mm -hmm. So... There's a that's probably a totally different episode on a totally different podcast. No, but I think him using that name that's probably more comfortable for British readers mm -hmm. to to view. They they'd be more right. willing to listen to a man named Gustavus than Olada. Olada, yes. So um, Equiano Vasa, he he's somebody we don't talk about much. No, I never heard of him. Um, and he's somebody worth talking about, even though he really only wrote this one thing. Mm -hmm. If you get the chance to do research on him, to figure out what he was a part of, yeah. to figure out the institutions he belonged to and championed, I think it enriches one's understanding of what it of, of the concept of slavery. Like you and I both, like you said at the beginning of the episode, we all understand that slavery is evil, yes. and there's no redeeming quality that we can sit down and say, but you know, it's yeah. we can't do that. It was necessary. No. We, we're not able to yeah. sit there and do that. But I think. It's worth delving into mm -hmm. the experience of those who were enslaved to comprehend the fullness of the evil that the institution represented. Yes, exactly. So um, that's why I chose him. And I, I wanted to choose somebody who was black and important history who wasn't American because I think it's fun to, to see what led up to what we know as the civil rights movement in the mid 20th century. Yes. It took a lot to get there. Oh my gosh. So. Yes. Yeah, this was a an excellent choice. I like that you chose someone 
who, you know, faced slavery mm-hmm. and who, I mean, he, he wasn't in America at any point, really. He, he lived Virginia. in Virginia for about a year. Okay. All right. So he was in Virginia, but he, I mean, he didn't settle here and that's not right. really a story, like really. He started. never identified. Yeah. As an American mm-hmm. or anything. But I think it's important to view that era mm-hmm. and then the one that I presented in the last episode Absolutely. with Jesse Whitman Fawcett. So, yeah, I think we did a, a good <laughs> job for Black History Month. I feel like we could have done a lot more episodes. Sure. But, yeah, I think this was good. We had a couple of tough discussions mm-hmm. that were fun to have in that they were they allowed us an opportunity to stretch our minds and our awareness mm-hmm. and our understanding. Awareness is, is very good. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's I mean, you think that it would be easy to be like, slavery is terrible, but you have to be, right. I don't know, you have to be careful when you talk about things like this to not get too just involved with your emotions and, and actually have a, an actual discussion well, about it. Well, and that's right. You know, with this kind of thing, it's healthy to approach it from a certain level of detachment to a degree. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying approach it to- from a totally sterile perspective and say like, this is the economics of slavery in 1797. Oh, that's, yeah. you know, but it's also, but, but I think it is healthy to come at it and say, if I were to totally invest myself emotionally into this conversation, I might not have hair on my head you when we get do done. You couldn't do it. You know? <laughs> Between the butterfly and the caviar and that, I'm done. <laughs> so anyway, Black History Month, It's I am going to champion us maybe later in the year to do another episode about black history. I think so. I think that would be great. <clears throat> we want to explore many facets of American history that involve mm. many different peoples of many different cultures. Yes, because this country is so diverse. It is incredible. Yes. Yes. And we're all unified by our Americanness. Americanness, yeah. I want to talk, we have to have a, an episode themed with patriotism. Patriotism. Because that's a very interesting concept as a black person in America. Oh. Yeah. So maybe we'll do maybe that. Maybe I'll have another aha moment. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. This is, this is really good. Awesome. So this has been the seventh episode of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. Thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more. Write a little better. And explore the human condition together.